All right, I'm going to introduce the episode as I always do, and then we will begin. On another episode of Soothing Semantics, ladies and gents, make sure to subscribe, like, and share. I'm your host, Rafi Pinsky, and today we have a very interesting guest by the name of Yehuda Cohen. He currently lives in the West Bank, a highly disputed uh, piece of land. People who are pro-Israel are in complete support of the Jews living in that land. People who are not pro-Israel or anti-Israel are not in support and uh, see that as disputed territory, occupied land, and it's become a, a very heavy topic of conversation, uh, especially when social media became a thing. I mean, it was always a topic of discussion, but now especially with the constant fighting in the West Bank that's, going, that's been going on uh, over the past few months, this has been talked about over and over and over again. So Yehuda, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you. Awesome. So a lot of a lot of topics to cover. We're going to cover the history of the Jewish people to some degree, when we were there, how we came back, why we have legitimacy, what the current what the new government is going to how it's going to shape the state of Israel and possible solutions and what we can do moving forward. Okay. Okay, so real quick, Yehuda Cohen works closely with Rudy Rashman, who I had on my channel re, uh, not too long ago, who you know is, is a very strong supporter of Israel and tries to bridge the gap between not only Israelis and Palestinians, but helps to educate people from all over the world on why the Jews should have a homeland, should live there, and what we can do to bring peace. So you also have your um, your organization... Okay, the, the essentially the organization. I mean, you and Rudy started it alone, or you do it with with other people as well? No, I, I started it with uh, some people. Rudy was not involved actually, but he has been involved, um, like in and out over the years. The Vision Movement. You can mm -hmm. check out at visionmovement.org or visionmagazine.org, and uh, a lot of interesting people. Um, you know, thought leaders uh, who are really thinking very critically about what are the goals of Jewish history, what's already been accomplished, uh, what's left to achieve, uh, what obstacles are standing in the way, and what we can do to be characters in the story of smashing those obstacles. So we're basically coming from a perspective uh, that Zionism was a very successful uh, movement. Um, uh, we'd say that Zionism was a link in the chain of several Jewish liberation movements, meaning from the time the Romans displaced us until we established the state of Israel in 1948, um, there was probably, you know, on average, one uh, major attempt to return to our land and take possession of our land every century. And uh, pretty much all of these movements failed uh, over 2000 years until Zionism. Zionism is the one that actually succeeded. Um, and it creates a lot of confusion for people because what we've done as a result of Zionism being the successful one is we've anachronistically used that word to describe all of the attempts that came before it. Like for example, next week is the festival of Hanukkah, right? Like the, I actually am, am talking to you from the mountain that was the headquarters of the Maccabee partisan, like the Maccabee like guerrilla army. Um, this was their partisan camp here. This is the mountain where Matityahu died. Um, outside my window is the valley where Yudah Maccabee was killed. Like we have their caves, we have their olive presses, we have their wine presses, their guard towers on this mountain. This is where 
Yuda basically trained, you know, a bunch of farmers and teachers to be guerrilla fighters, you know, and, and fight a 26 year war against Syrian Greek rule in our land. And uh, there are a lot of people today who will call that movement a Zionist movement. We'll refer to Yudha Maccabee as a Zionist or Bar Kokhba as a Zionist. And the truth is they weren't Zionists, right? Um, it, it's almost the same as calling uh, Jesus a Palestinian, right? Yeah. right? It's taking like a modern term that means something today and retroactively applying it, um, a, you know, to, to uh, somebody who, who didn't use that word and might not have known what that word would have meant. So, um, so I'd say that Zionism was a very complicated movement. It was a, you know, you can look at Zionism from one perspective and say, well, this is an indigenous people's liberation movement, but you could also look at Zionism from another perspective and say, this is a colonial project that came out of Europe. Both are technically true because the Jewish people are complicated. We're, we're really complicated. We're probably the only example I know of an ancient people that was displaced from its land uh, managed to hold on to its identity for roughly 2,000 years and actually come back, like return to the land it was displaced from, um, and take possession of that land, largely using the tools of colonialism. So it's very easy to see the Zionist movement both ways. Um, and I think that, and, and I think that whether whatever somebody thinks of Zionism, we can say it succeeded to a large degree. It might not have succeeded in doing everything it set out to do. Like, for example, it didn't normalize the Jewish people. We didn't become a normal people as a result of Zionism. We're still abnormal. Uh, and it didn't end anti-Semitism. There's still anti-Semitism in the world. Zionism didn't solve that problem. But I think that Zionism did achieve many of the deeper aspirations of the Jewish people. Uh, like a lot of the things we say in the Amidah, in like the Tfilot, three times a day in the synagogue, that, you know, that that we've wanted, you know, th those tefillot. I, I don't know if people are aware of this, but the you know when when you open up a uh, a book in the synagogue and you start to lehit palel. I don't like to use the word pray because it's a very Christian concept. It's a very different thing that that we do. But when we start to lehit palel, uh, when we and we do what's called the amidah, the shemona esrei, um, the words we're saying are actually um, what for you know, probably until the time of the Haskalah, until the time of the uh, Jewish enlightenment a couple hundred years ago, that's pretty much what almost every Jew everywhere in the world deeply wanted. Those are the right. things we were, that we were yearning for. Those are the things that we, those were our like deepest aspirations on a real level. It wasn't like we go into the synagogue, we say the words in the book, we close the book, go out and try to go like make money and like bed women and like, you know, you know, win the lottery. Like we were actually like directing our lives towards those goals, uh, and which was a very difficult situation to be in because practically speaking, those goals were very uh, unachievable you you know, in, the, in the conditions we were in uh, until Zionism changed that, right? So Zionism did achieve some of those real deep aspirations that we'd been carrying with us for thousands of years, maybe even unintentionally. Um, but now I think we have to acknowledge that Zionism is over. I think it ended in 1967. I think it ended when we came back to Zion, to Zion, to Jerusalem. And I think that uh, since then, the Jewish people have been ready for a new liberation movement that can um, protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess, while addressing its flaws and correcting them, and actually trying to identify the next objectives of Jewish liberation, figuring out what comes after Zionism. Zionism 
is the movement that built the vessel, right? Like I have this cup here, Zionism built the cup. We have a state again, we have an army again, we have an economy, we have a government, but now we need to fill the cup with content. Now we need to figure out what, what the point of all that is. What are the values? What's the identity? What are the uh, higher aspirations that are going to drive that cup, that are gonna fill that cup with content and give it meaning? So Zionism did a great job building the vessel. Now we got to fill that vessel with spirit, with content, and uh, and and do something with it that's going to benefit all of humanity. Because um, ultimately, our liberation is not just our liberation. You know, we've historically seen ourselves as um, existing for the sake of humanity. And every time we've had power in history, we've benefited humankind in one way or another. And this time should be no different. Now that we have power again for the first time in 2000 years, we should be thinking about how that's gonna be beneficial for all of humankind. That's beautiful. That's, and, and I very much agree. So, so uh, there's so much to unpack. So I'm gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll go step by step. We'll go step by step. So but that's why the vision movement was started. The vision movement was started to really educate young Jews to be able to identify and work towards achieving the next goals of Jewish history. That is the purpose mm -hmm. of what we do. If people want to check us out, go to our magazine, visionmag.org. I have a podcast there. I actually have two podcasts there and some other people do as well. And plenty of articles, plenty of videos. And uh, there's also visionmovement.org, which is like where you can check out all our programs uh, that we offer online and in-person educational programs. Fantastic. Guys, make sure to check it out. I'm going to drop the links and I'll, I'll have my editor drop a... Um... I'll have him drop a slide that'll come onto the screen so people can actually see what it looks like. So you mentioned that, that you mentioned that the that the Zionist movement had some very big positive components, which I acknowledge as well. What are some of the biggest negative components that we still see today that you're trying to address or that we can address? Uh, I think that you know. It, there are things that are definitely negative today and, and might have even been negative at the time, but um, I'm not sure, honestly, we would have been able to achieve what we achieved or Zionism would have been able to achieve what it did without that. It's a question because history happened the way it happened. Uh, I think that the, I think a major flaw in the Zionist movement is that it related to the Jewish people as an object with a problem as opposed to a subject with desires. Meaning, uh, if you see the Jewish people as an object with a problem, you know, that problem could be anti-Semitism, it could be persecution, it could be assimilation, it could be uh, homelessness, whatever that problem is, Zionism said, okay, well, this is a solution. But um, the, the people of Israel who were more connected to our identity, I would say, really saw the Jewish people as a subject with desires. There's something we want. There's something that we're aiming to change in the world. There's something that we're looking to bring to humanity. And, and that's more like being on a mission. It's not because of anti-Semitism. It's not because of persecution, but it's because we're here to do a job and we're going to do it. And this is what we need to get it done. And that requires us to be in our land. And that requires us to have self-determination in our land. And that requires us to, uh, to have a society here that really does express our identity and our values and, uh, and, and hopefully create structures and models that can, um, that, that can introduce something new into the world, help the world move past where we're currently stuck. Because I think if you look at, you know, 
for example, even like the systems that exist right now, capitalism or, or ideological liberalism, uh, these might be better than what came before, but they're not the best humanity can do. And I think that part of what we came home for is to actually figure out better ways to organize an economy, better models of minority rights, you know, better ways to deal with a lot of the challenges um, that are confronting us in the 21st century, confronting not only us, but, but all humankind. Okay, very valid. Now, what do you, I mean, this all come, when I think of what you're saying, it makes me think about the current status quo, mm. right? So if you mentioned minorities and what we can do for them, we currently have a very challenging status quo, right? So for whoever doesn't understand, you have Israelis that live in Israel with citizenship, with Israeli citizenship, and they are much better off financially and economically than Palestinians, say, in Gaza or the West Bank. So to me, there's no validity as to whether Jews should be living there or not. The challenge is what in the world do we do with the millions of Palestinians that are living in Gaza, living in the West Bank, where their leadership are they're set out to destroy Israel and create, I guess, you you know, what, what they call a Muslim ummah, you know, like a, a caliphate. So what do we do, right? Because it's, on one hand, we don't want to be naive, right? You have to understand as a Jew or as a human, you don't want to give, it, give an inch and, and someone takes a mile. So that's the conundrum. What do you, uh, what do you suggest? Well, first of all, I'm not sure um, I accept all the premises of your question. I think there are a lot of things we take you took for granted in that question that I might not agree with. Okay. Um, but uh, let, let's say, for example, uh, Islam. You know, if we're an object with a problem, then we can say, all right, you know, maybe there are at, at least some interpretations of Islam or weaponized interpretations of Islam that could be very dangerous and scary and we want to protect ourselves from. But if we're a subject with desires, we're going to ask, well, what, what is the ideal, you know, what is the ideal um, um, belief system for somebody who's not us, for somebody who's not from the tribes of Israel, right? Uh, maybe it's Islam. Maybe Islam is the ideal Noahide religion. Maybe that uh, that's a a, um, a, a, a movement the, like the, like Islam. It could be the movement that uh, helps all of the non-Jews in the world come close to the Creator and uh, be the best versions of themselves. I don't know, but again, we, we have to come from the perspective of like what's our mission and how do we achieve it, not who hates me right now, because they're you know. A lot of people might hate us right now. Some people might hate us because uh, for bad reasons. Some might, people might hate us for good reasons. I mean, we've, like, just to give an easy example that's relevant to our conversation, Zionism, you know, one of the flaws, you asked me to, to tell you some of the negative features of Zionism, it hurt people. A lot of people got hurt as a result of, uh, of you know, what the Zionists did. Uh, I think, um, look, it's easy for me to criticize living in the wake of Zionism success. It's easy for me to say, well, Zionism used, you know, colonial methodology um, to, to bring the Jewish people back home. I mean, all of the Zionist leaders knew that we were from this land and we were only ever not here as a result of a crime committed against us. But in the process of returning us here, 
they, um, in terms of like, practically speaking, the tools, they, many of the tools they used were colonial tools. I mean, they learned them essentially in Europe. These were tools that were largely successful. It's complicated when we utilize them because we're coming back to the land that we had been displaced from. We were basically a refugee population coming home. Um, and, and until the Haskalah, we knew we were a refugee population. It was only in the wake of the Haskalah, uh, the, the Jewish enlightenment that Jews in certain parts of Europe started to think of themselves as like Germans with a religion called Judaism or Frenchmen with a religion called Judaism or Americans with a religion called Judaism. You know, before that we were basically Palestinian refugees for 1700 years that were, you know, organizing our communities according to a portable version of the national culture we left behind, committed, determined to return to that land and to reestablish independence and to rebuild our civilization. That's what we always told ourselves would happen. Every Pesach Seder, every wedding, every Yom Kippur, like that was just, that was just our story. That was the, the, the theme of Jewish history that we're gonna come back to our land and we're gonna rebuild our civilization. Uh, and, and now we're in the process. It's very exciting. We're actually living in one of the most amazing chapters of our people's story that we've actually come back um, and we're here but we don't 100% know what we're doing here. And we've come back in a way that was maybe a little bit not what our ancestors expected. You know, if you talk to, uh, you know, our, our ancestors six or 700 years ago, and you tell them how the Zionism, the, the Zionist movement would do what it did, and it, it would maybe seem a little strange to them that, that those Jews are going to do it, like these guys are going to succeed at bringing us back, like, like what do they know, right? But they did, like that's the way, that's the way the author of history made it happen, that is, and, and there are reasons for that. Um, but now we're here, and, um, and we're in a very, you know, we're, we're in a very interesting situation, like if, even if you look at our most recent election, uh, where it seems like Israeli society is changing, there's a transition taking place. Um, and it's very scary for some people. It's uh, very exciting for others. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of questions. You know, there are a lot of people in Israel and out um, who are looking at what's going on here politically, you know, and, and wondering, well, where's this gonna go? What's, what's, gonna be the, what's gonna be the ramifications of this? Um, and I'm of the opinion that this is not like a fluke. I don't think that these election results are just like a one-off and you know, next time it'll go back the other way. I, I think this is more or less, you know, you might have, you might have a, a, like some dips, but for the most part, this is more or less the socio-political trajectory of Israeli society. Like we're talking about a society where certain people have been having a lot of kids for decades and other people have been having very few. And now we're seeing um, like the results of that coming home to roost. we so so okay <laughs> what happens is there's like five different topics and i want to make sure to to cover all them all right no, no well not five different topics it was very it was very relevant they're all very relevant to each other a lot of a lot of people have an issue with zionism at least from the arab side seemingly because they don't like that the leaders of Zionism weren't religious whatsoever. They were secular. It's interesting that they bring this up because you and Rudy have mentioned in uh, some of your videos, you, the vision movement's connected to Habayat or, or? No, I mean, I, I have a lot of 
friends and you know at Habayit, it's not the same movement. Uh, I know that Rudy was very heavily involved in Habayit for a while, and and uh, I don't know if he still is, but uh, I have friends there, and and sometimes we've you know collaborated on projects, but. Uh, but no, the vision movement is a vision movement and Habayit is Habayit. Okay, There's so it's a separate movement. separate thing. Yeah. So that's something they say. They say that it's not even as if the Jews were religious or kept, you know, the belief in God and whatnot. These were completely secular and oftentimes atheist individuals who came in and established a state. Unfortunately, there was a lot of violence and whatnot. So do you think that that has a part to play? Because you did mention that in a sense, it was a good thing that they weren't. Or maybe I misunderstood you. I think that's the way it, it meant the look the, the we are not um first of all to answer that question you have to really struggle with the question of what are the Jews are we a religion are we a nation are we a culture are we a race what, what are the Jews and um the challenging part is that we actually predate all those social constructs we're not a religion we're not a nation, we're not a race. We're an ancient civilization, maybe similar to the Aztecs. We have a spiritual component, we have a legal component, but we also have a national component and a territorial component. And, um, and I think that in, in um, even like in Europe, when, um, you know, there, we, we suffered many, many, many layers of colonization, beginning with the, with the Romans just, you know, um, dominating us in our land and eventually displacing us and, and just all especially Ashkenazi Jews by the way we went through many 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 traumatic centuries of very harsh persecution and colonization and um I, I mean even the fact that uh, I know I've mentioned the Hastala a couple of times but even the fact that at a certain point when uh, French or German uh, leaders were willing to to include us were willing to grant us inclusion and whiteness to a certain extent. The fact that we wanted those things is a result of the persecution we suffered as a result of not having them previously. So we, we and, and we haven't really healed ourselves yet. And um, I, I think that part of what happened is that um, there is a dialectical relationship between the Haskalah and the Zionist movement. On the one hand, the Zionist movement is a rejection of the Haskalah's um, take on Jewish identity, like kind of turning us into a religion, like the Zionists say, no, wait a minute, we're a people, right? Um, but at the same time, Zionism wouldn't have been possible without the Haskalah. I think that kind of led to, to the emergence of Zionism. Um, so I'd say both are expressions of the tribal force of Yosef. You know, when we have these conversations, I think it's important to realize that terminology like liberal and conservative or right and left or religious and secular are, um, are framings that really are very connected to the development of Western civilization, uh, whether we're talking about uh, you know, Greco-Roman ideas, whether we're talking about Christianity, whether we're talking about the revolutionary transition from feudalism to capitalism, you know, like, like all those words, right, left, religious, secular, liberal, conservative, make a lot of sense within Western civilization. And they can more or less tell you, describe to you, okay, who is this person? Oh, he's a, he's a religious leftist. You know what he is, right? He's a, 
he's a conservative, you know, you know what he is. But with us, these words don't really, when you, when you try to use those words to describe the Jewish political map, especially the Israeli political map, the Jews in the land of the Jews, then um, you're, you're just totally misunderstanding um, and, and making errors in your analysis. Uh, and that's a mistake I think a lot of people make when they try to understand Israeli society. They kind of superimpose Western political framings that don't make sense according to who we are. So I, I would say a better way of understanding um, the different camps within Israel are actually the tribes, like the, the, you know, the tribe of Yehuda and the tribe of Yosef and the tribe of Yisachar and the tribe of uh, Zvulun and the tribe of uh, Shimon and uh, Dan and Levi and Asher and Naftali and Gad, etc. So um, Yosef is, the tri is one of the leadership tribes of Israel that is very um that is very good at managing the material world like jews who are good at things like uh building uh building states or building economies or banking or or business or science the managing the material world building armies whatever it is mm -hmm. um and are also usually very um connected to the dominant civilization of any given period whether it was Egypt in the time of the original Yosef, whether it was Greece in the time of the Maccabean revolt, or whether it's the Western world right now. Um, and so the messianic force of Yosef, what we call Mashiach ben Yosef, is when that's repurposed towards Jewish liberation, towards like the goals and mission of the Jewish people. That's what we call Zionism. Zionism is the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the messianic movement of Yosef, where where we build the vessel, where we build, it's like the physical rebirth, the material rebirth of the Jewish people. Um, and what happened is after the success of Zionism, that tribe, the Zionists, basically regressed back towards their assimilationist impulse. They did their job. They built the state, they built the economy, they built the army, they, they did all those things. And now they're, now Zionism is basically Tel Aviv. Like, or neo-Zionism, whatever. They just want to be a nation like other nations. They just right, want to be true. UN. And they're threatened by, like, like when you look at these elections, what, what's really happening in these elections is other tribes are starting to gain dominance. They're not Yosef tribes, meaning you know, because Yosef so much resembles the Western world, um, within those political parties, the parties that are really expressions of the tribal force of Yosef, you have what looks like a linear political spectrum like in the Western world. You have liberal and conservative expressions of Yosef because they're basically resembling the, the Western world. But when you start to deal with, you know, the Haredi parties like the, or the Palestinian parties or the national religious parties, they don't exist on that spectrum. There's something else. Uh, they're considered dangerous and scary and extreme for different reasons, but that's because they're outside of the box of the Western political spectrum. And so that's why a lot of people are having trouble understanding what just happened here in the elections. That's, that's very well put. It's a totally different animal. I mean, in America, you have, hold on. In America, you have, a, you have a melting pot of people where everyone comes together to make their money. You can have an Israeli that left Tel Aviv and, an, and a Palestinian who left Ramallah, and now they both live in New York. They have their businesses. Say la vie, everything's great. This happens very often. Right. In Israel, being that we want to keep a Jewish majority, whether that be religious or not, 
we have to do certain things that a typical American democracy cannot do, that a typical Western democracy cannot do. And that's where things get very tricky, you know, and that's why the meat and potatoes of the conversation, well, I mean, there's so many, meat, there's so many different kinds of meat and potatoes here, but a topic that is uh, extremely important is how in the world do we move forward? You know, okay. that's, that's what's so challenging. So, um, well, that's the silver lining. I think that Zionism um, and the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the people who established the state, uh, and when I say Zionism, I mean like the Zionist movement, the, the ideas that drove, the ideas of the thinkers that drove the Zionist movement, that, um, that outlook doesn't have solutions to our current problems. That's one of the reasons why we need a new um, Jewish liberation movement that comes after Zionism, right? Like a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement. Um, so I think that the, you know, right now you can say that the state of Israel is like a European style nation state because uh, Zionism basically borrowed European nationalism and they put a Jewish, you know, Magen David on it, like a Star of David on it, and called it a Jewish nationalism. Um, but it's really a Jewish flavor of European nationalism in many ways. And, and basically, the, the state of Israel is like a European-style nation state with Jewish decorations and a Jewish demographic majority. And that's how we define Jewish state. When we say, well, what makes a state Jewish? We say, well, the decorations, the fact that the flag has a Star of David on it, uh, the fact that the national anthem is a tikva, the fact that the language is Hebrew, like that's what makes the state Jewish and a demographic majority. And that's the skin of the state. I'm less interested in the skin of the state being Jewish. I'm more interested in the skeleton and the organs of the state being Jewish. Um, and I think that uh, that really um, creates a lot of space for us to be uh, flexible in terms of where we can go with Palestinians. Uh, I think that right now, the the Jewishness of the state is uh, very hard and very shallow, meaning it's so hard that it's too Jewish for Palestinians or other non-Jews here, but it's so shallow that it's not Jewish enough for the Haredim and for some of my neighbors. And so I think instead of Israel having a hard and shallow Jewish identity, we need to have a soft and deep Jewish identity. Um, so. And what I mean is the structures of the state, meaning um, I, I would like it to, you know, first of all, obviously I support a one state solution. I think there should be a single state between the river and the sea that uh, where, where we all have equality and equal access and democratic rights. Um, I favor participatory democracy, not a representative democracy. I just think that um, participatory democracy is much more democratic. And when I say democratic, I mean empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. That is my definition of democracy. Um, I think in Israeli society, it's often misused as a synonym for westernization. Uh, you see that a lot in the news now, like when people are screaming about the need to protect Israeli democracy, what they really mean is like the Western features of Israeli identity, like the things that make us like America and like Europe. And for me, that's not necessarily democratic. Um, I think that, you know, some of those features might be okay in certain cases, but democracy for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very principled about my understanding of what that means. It means 
empowering people to be able to influence the structures we live under. So when it comes to our democracy, I think Palestinians and Jews should be equal. We should both have uh, equal ability to be able to influence the structures we live under. Um, that's important. So this leads me, to, and, I, and I love the points you're making because I think that uh, personally, hold on. Personally, I love the, this idea. I think one state is a better option. The worry obviously people have is the Muslims, you know, having more of them than they're, let me articulate this properly. The concern from many Jews, whether it be inside or outside of Israel, have a concern that Palestinians having a higher birth rate will eventually outnumber us. Mm -hmm. They might, and they very possibly will outvote us as, an, as a result. So if, say, there are, I don't know how many Palestinians there are inside and outside of Israel, do you have a number? I mean, what do you, what do you think? I mean, the numbers are fluid and the numbers are also politicized. So I, I, I would say the numbers are irrelevant because whatever the numbers are, I think we should be working towards the same ideal. We should make whatever solution we come up with needs to be one that makes demography irrelevant. One thing I'll tell you, though, is that the fastest growing population between the river and the sea is not Palestinian. Yeah. Right. And, and I think Jews like me and Palestinians are kind of tied for second place. So, you know, so, so it's not, I, I'm not so worried about that. And again, I think that if we're really able to reconcile in a real way and we're able to have like real peace, we're going to care about what's important to each other. You know, like, so for us, it's important that the state express our identity and values, not in a way that makes people who are not us feel excluded, but in a way that makes us feel like this is what we've been looking for for 2000 years. And, uh, and so I think that if we, if we make the, um, the, on a very deep level, the structures and the policies Jewish uh, in such a way that people with a real Jewish education would just kind of like see the Jewishness of the state, feel it, experience it, it would just be obvious to them because like, because like they'll see the way, I don't know, our transportation system works and they'll say, oh yeah, 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 that's in the Gemara or, or they'll see the way our, um, you know, our sanitation system works or, or our education. So they'll just like see it like being manifested. They'll see like Jewish identity being manifested in all of the different uh, features of our national existence. But someone who's not a Jew won't feel that there's anything they don't get to have that we get to have because we're Jews and they're not. Meaning nobody should feel othered or excluded as a result of not being Jews. Um, and the, the ability to see the Jewishness of the state should almost be dependent on a person's level of Jewish education. Um, and anyone who, who's just like without a Jewish education just doesn't know these things, isn't familiar with, with our culture, our history, our identity, et cetera. They would just see like a, a democratic society that functions very well and everyone's equal. Okay. Um, and again, I, I love how that is. So here are a few, I guess you, we can call them devil's advocate questions. Sure, go for it. If we have a, a majority of Israelis that are either secular or atheist, and they want to, for instance, wear bikinis on the beach and do things that may not be religiously permissible, so to speak, and many of the Palestinians aren't doing those kinds of things, but man, many of them may very well want to, actually. They just can't. They just can't. If we're bringing more of Torah value or, you know, Jewish law into the scene of things, which which could be very beneficial, 
how do we work that out with opposing views on each side? Mm-hmm. And so, so when I talk about the state being Jewish and functioning in a Jewish way, I'm not talking about coercing people's behavior. I'm not talking about saying you can't, you know, have this in your refrigerator or you can't uh, use your phone on Shabbat or you can't wear a bikini at the beach. I don't think, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's speaking in that way. But if your if your dog damages my bicycle and we go to court in Jerusalem, I think the judge, instead of ruling according to British common law, uh, he should rule according to Babakama. He should rule according to our people's conception of what justice is in a situation where one person's property damages another person's property. Meaning that will make the state, our legal structure, deeply Jewish, but nobody's being forced. Again, that's one of the reasons I don't like this like social construct of religion. When you think of it as a religion, then it's like, it, it feels very uh, restrictive and it, it feels very Christian, honestly. But when we think of it, it's just like our people's ancient culture. It's just like the, one of the native cultures of this land. You know, Shabbat is part of like the native culture of this land. You, you come to Jerusalem, you spend Shabbat in Jerusalem, or you spend Shabbat in a Jewish community in the West Bank, and you don't feel it as like a religious thing that's going on. You feel it like it's just part of the national culture, it's just part of what's going on in this country. Real quick, I love that you're saying this because I watched Tal, the travel, you know, the traveling clat who I just had on my podcast. He was with you going into shul synagogue for, for non-Jews. And you and he asked you this. He said, Do you think most people in this village are praying three times a day? And you your response was amazing. Your response was, it's not something that people feel obligated to do. It's their way of life. It's something that you just do living here in this area. And I found that very interesting and it made, it made perfect sense. So say that, say that the new government mm-hmm. decides to annex the West Bank, theoretically. And now is, uh, Israelis and Arabs are living side by side. They're granted citizenship. Is there a law of return? Can Palestinians, say from New York, come back and live there? Because some of them might want to. And then... What do we do with the Palestinians that just don't want peace? Because I believe that even in this instance, I have a hard time believing there won't still be groups that say, ah, nice. Okay, now we're living amongst them. Now we get to infiltrate all of their towns and cities. Now we're just living everywhere they live. There might, you know, maybe some Palestinians will want to, you know, post up in in Efrat and say, hey, well, we're citizens too now. We want to buy property. How do we how do we concern these security risks? Because they're very well might be. Um, I, I mean, look, where I come from, I think the best way to to think about uh, security risks is simply to just be more dangerous than the people you're worried about. Like I think that that question kind of comes from the perspective that we are lambs and they are wolves. I think a lot of Jews see it that way, unfortunately. I think a lot of Israelis see it that way. We are lambs, they are wolves, meaning like we need uh, uh, military structures to protect ourselves because they're wolves and we're lambs. I'm a wolf too. And uh, therefore I don't need a checkpoint and a wall and all these military structures uh, or oppressive systems to protect me from them. That is a beautiful, that I, 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 you know, that, because if you think about it like this, the you know other countries that have a primary group. I mean, the difference though, 
kind of backtracking a bit. Difference though is if they have a heavy percentage. Now, let's say they're fifty percent of our population, it creates more of a challenge. And most of most Muslims, Muslim countries, for instance, the Jews and the Christians were such a minority that even if they were wolves to the point where they were a lot more dangerous than than the primary inhabitants, they would have a very hard time winning. Uh, and I think a concern is if we do allow them all in and we do take all the land back and now they have citizenship, if they make up a very large percentage, 50, maybe even higher, uh, you know, we'll have a harder time defending the land. I mean, I think that's a valid concern. All this, look, all, again, right now, it's it's a hard thing to talk about because right now we're enemies. We really are enemies. We've been enemies for over 100 years. Right. And, and I think that it, in the minds of most Israelis, they're to blame, the Palestinians, they're to blame. They started it. You know, they just want to kill us. You know, you, you heard that uh, all, how's it go? Like if, uh, if the Arabs put down their weapons, we'd have peace. Well, your statement, yeah. Right, if the Israelis put down our weapons, we'd, have, we'd be dead or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what most Israelis believe, not just in the West Bank, in uh, Dan, Tel Aviv, where, you know, like that, that's what most Israelis believe. They believe, that the reason we don't have peace is because the other side just wants to kill us, that they just want to be violent against us. And Palestinians believe something else. They're having a different experience. I think that that's part of our problem here. We've been experiencing this conflict so uh, differently for the last 102 years that um, we're not even fighting each other. We're fighting our fantasies of the other. Um, you know, I often talk about narratives, like the Jewish and Palestinian narratives here. Um, when I say narrative, I mean a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, um, organized to tell a story and contextualized within an ideological worldview. And I think what we both do, Israelis and Palestinians, is we have this habit of, of picking the facts we like that help us tell the story we wanna tell and, um, and kind of ignoring the facts that complicate that story. Uh, we both do it. And- Confirmation uh, bias. Yeah, and and we're we're doing it. We most of us are doing it subconsciously. Most of us aren't aware of it, but we're both doing it, and we're both telling true stories when it comes to ourselves and our experiences for the most part. But we're both really getting it wrong when we talk about the other. Uh, we're actually both on on both sides. I think Israelis and Palestinians, by and large, are deeply threatened by the identity and narrative of the other. We feel that if their story is true, that makes our story less true. And therefore, we feel like our narratives are in conflict. Um, and we're both, you know, it's funny because the role I play in the Palestinian story is not who I really am. I'm this like fantasy antagonist that they need to fight. And the role they play in, in our story is not who they really are. It's just like fantasy antagonist. So, um, so I think that, you know, one of the things we need to do, wh- when I talk about a one-state solution when we're living together, um, one of the things that obviously needs to change um, either first or certainly at the beginning of the process is how we experience each other. Um, meaning as long as we're experiencing each other as enemies, we're not going to have peace, whether we're talking about a one state or a two state or a federation or a confederation or an eight state, it doesn't matter what the solution is. If the relationship's bad, then it's going to be bad. You know, a, a, a Palestinian colleague of mine, uh, in, uh, Sami Awad, likes to say that, you know, everybody likes to talk about solutions which is like talking about the frame around a picture. But what we need to do is fix the picture. We need to fix the picture inside. And when we fix the picture inside, then we can consider many frames. But if we're just trying to find the magic frame that will fit the ugly picture and make the ugly picture better, we're not gonna find it. 
There's no solution that can work until the relationship dynamics change. And the only way to change the relationship dynamics is to have the courage to look at the story of the other really, to really understand the story of the other, including how we're perceived in that story, including and including the things we've done to um, to, to make ourselves perceived that way. It might they might be getting it wrong because they don't know a lot of other things about us or why we did the things. I, you know, I'm going to give you an example, uh, and you know, this is going to bring us back to the question of Zionism. One of the things that the Zionist movement did is they established these like um, they, they established this concept of avodah uh, ivri, like like Hebrew labor, Jewish labor. And, uh, and they established like Jewish only labor unions, right? So think about it from a Palestinian perspective. You have these people coming from Europe, right? Um, some of them might claim they're from this land, but how do we know, right? Like the, these people coming from Europe, they seem to be developing a lot, building a lot, you know, uh, and creating infrastructure and creating jobs and but not for us, just for them, right? Um, so, and and like, and not only that, if one of these, you know, Jewish uh, enterprises decides to hire Palestinians, they're, you know, shamed and boycotted by the other Jews, right? Now, that's true, that happened. The Zionist movement did that, but there's a reason we did that, that Palestinians are completely unaware of. It doesn't make it okay. I'm just saying that they're not aware that we were trying to fix something inside ourselves that the, the Ashkenazim, at least, the Jews who had been in Europe, um, had been forced into very specific professions for many generations that, that caused us to really be unfamiliar with manual labor, with farming, with construction, with, with, with things that were really required, uh, we needed to reconnect to. We needed to reconnect to our land. We needed to learn to be um, workers to be manual laborers. We need to learn how to be farmers. We need to we need to learn all those things and uh, fighters also soldiers, right? Like we needed to learn all that to fix something inside ourselves to become normal again because we had become abnormal. Um, and and we knew that if a situation was created where well Jews could be the owners and Jews could be the managers, but all the workers and farmers are going to be Palestinians. Then, then that would have happened. Like, like th th that would have been the situation, and we would have wouldn't have fixed the thing inside ourselves. So it became very important. Now, I'm, again, this is I'm trying to explain it. It's not defending it. I'm explaining it. So the Zionist movement basically championed this notion of Hebrew labor and uh, businesses and enterprises that were uh, hiring Palestinians. Were, were considered betraying the Jewish national cause uh, at that time. And, th and, and if Palestinians had been aware of all of that, maybe they would have seen it differently. Maybe they wouldn't have, because from a material perspective, they're still in the same situation. And there are all these new people coming in and, and kind of taking up space and, uh, and, and buying land. I'll give you another one. They're buying land from absentee landowners in Syria and Lebanon who technically, legally, on paper, somehow own the land but there are peasants on that land who have been there for many, many, many generations and are deeply connected to it. And so Zionists might purchase the land from a landowner who might have never seen it in his life, who basically just like collects the produce or whatever, you know, you know, it was, I guess it was kind of like a feudalist uh, arrangement. Uh, but 
but he wasn't like connected to the land. He just like owned it on paper. Like he owned it like in the Western sense. So he sold it to the Zionists. The Zionists show up and tell the Palestinians on the land who have been there for generations, who, you know, whose grandfather planted that tree over there and, and all those things that now you have to leave. We're building a kibbutz here, right? Technically, the Zionists weren't doing anything wrong. They bought the land, now they want to use the land. But from a Palestinian perspective, they're being displaced and it doesn't feel just. And so I think there were a lot of misunderstandings that took place and there maybe wasn't enough of an effort to uh, understand each other. And the British, of course, had uh, for centuries been experts in dividing and ruling native populations. Um, so they definitely like fanned those flames and, and kind of pushed us into conflict because it obviously gave them, you know, the British did not plan to leave here. The British really intended to, to stay in Palestine forever. That was their plan. And they were just kind of making all these promises to different people and pushing us into conflict with each other um, in, in ways that were really advancing and in their interests and entrenching their rule here. Um, so they, they didn't count on Jews, you know, deciding to ultimately rebel against the British and drive them out. That kind of took them by surprise. But, uh, you know, but, but we, I, I would say the Zionist leadership and the Palestinian leadership for the, by and large, um, fell into the trap. And we made a series of mistakes um, and we hurt each other uh, in different ways. And we, we started to um, understand each other as, as the bad guy in each of our respective stories. And uh, to this day, we're not ready to really like reevaluate and think about, well, how does this look from his perspective? You know, how does this look from another angle? Or, or if I was him, what would I have done? You know, like, like uh, I, I think we, you know, I come from the perspective that there's, there is an objective truth. There is a divine truth, but humans can't really grasp it. The, the only thing we can do is come close to it. And the way we come close to it is by being inclusive of other people's subjective truths. So I think that by us actually engaging with the Palestinian story without fear and without concern that it's going to delegitimize our story, but really engage with it um, and try to create the space for their story and our story to be simultaneously true and to create a real, like, like a bigger story, a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives, we could actually become co-protagonists in the same story instead of the antagonist in each other's stories. And I think, but, but that requires us actually, you know, knowing each other, um, you know, which is hard, like, like a lot of us don't want to know each other. A lot of us at this point are like, uh, really, in both Israeli and Palestinian society, it's a sign of weakness or even betrayal to try and engage with the narrative of the other, to try and understand the story of the other. So um, we have a lot to overcome. I think that's one of the biggest barriers but I think once we were, it, it, when we're able to do that, when we're able to actually understand each other's identities and stories and narratives and and understandings of events, et cetera, we'll be able to um, we'll be able to to get past this conflict, uh, and we'll be able to stop hurting each other. But right now, we're we don't even know why the other does what he does. Like we're both attributing identities and motivations and ideologies on the other that have very little to do with how the other experiences himself. It's, it's happening in both directions. And we both adopt very counterproductive methods of struggle. 
the way in which we even fight each other, the way in which we, we both try to win uh, or try to defeat the other is counterproductive because it's not based on who the other really is or how the other really sees himself. It's actually based on our fantasy of them. You're on mute. Yeah, because it, it helps with the, with the sound sometimes if I stay on mute. I just really would let, I wonder what will unfold. I really wonder what it all unfolds. You're, and you mentioned before that that we should look at look at ourselves as wolves too. And uh, I mean, we have a hell of a military, and we do have very strong, tough Israelis. Um, I mean, where do you where do you think the trajectory is going? I mean, I I really do like what you're saying. I just wonder where things are going to go. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I'll say Zionism, meaning like what we can call like European nationalism with Jewish decorations doesn't have the uh, tools to deal with a lot of the challenges confronting us today. Like, I don't think Zionism has a way to include Palestinians in a Jewish state in the entire land. Um, but I think the, again, they're, they're not mature enough yet. The, the people who, like, for example, guys like Betzel Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir or, or these, these figures that the whole world is, is frightened by right now, like these scary politicians who are now suddenly came into Knesset with 14 seats and how did that happen and Netanyahu looks as if he might be forming a government with him I'm not sure that's going to happen um it it's the it, it you know Netanyahu is is really a, a brilliant politician and he might decide to 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 do something totally different in the end but right now it looks like that's the government that's being formed these guys are I'll tell you where I agree with them like guys like Smotrich and mm -hmm. and and Avi Maoz and, and the rest of them. I think I, I agree with their understanding of Jewish identity. I, for the most part, agree with, uh, I mean, they're, they're not monolithic, but generally speaking, I, I agree with the way they understand the Torah. I agree with their understanding of Jewish identity. I agree with their understanding of Jewish history and its meaning. I agree with uh, their understanding of our connection to this land. I think those are very important things. I think those are very fundamental things that I can't say I share with uh, Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz or Mirav Michaeli or even Benjamin Netanyahu. Like I share those things with Betelos Smotrich, you know? Um, I think we disagree on a lot of politics. I think we disagree on Palestinian issues. Uh, we might disagree on uh, some socioeconomic questions, I actually might feel closer to people like Ari Derry when it comes to socioeconomic issues. Um, but I might disagree with him on, on other things. Uh, but I think that that identity, the identity that a guy like Smotrich or a guy like Ben Gvir has is deep enough that if he engages with the Palestinian narrative, he'll still be him. Like I'm still me even though I might recognize the Palestinian story and recognize what we've done wrong and recognize what we need to do to make, to make it right. And, and how, you know, cause we do have power, like we have power over them. Um, so even if they did wrong and we did wrong, I think it's still our job. It's still our responsibility to make the first move towards uh, building trust and, and, and like making it right. Like, I think that's on us. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we have to, we have to convince them to trust us, not the other way around because we're the ones with power. And, and part of the problem is we, you know, we think of ourselves as vulnerable because we haven't, we haven't yet 
come to terms with power. We have power. We really have a lot of power for the first time in 2000 years, and we don't know it. Like we still think of ourselves as like this like vulnerable minority group that, you know, a lot of our, a, a lot of Israeli foreign policy is, is like, as if we're this like vulnerable minority group. We sometimes overuse power. We sometimes underuse power. Some of us fetishize power. Some of us just want to drop it and, and, and go back to the way it was a couple hundred years ago when we didn't have power. But I think we need to become comfortable with power. We need to learn how to use it properly, use it justly. Um, sometimes that means destroying our enemies. Like really, like sometimes it means making people fear us so nobody will lift a hand against us. But sometimes it means saying, we don't have to be afraid. We, we, we can recognize what we've done wrong and try to make it right to this population that we've hurt. Like that, that's also an expression of power. I actually love, I, I, I love what you're saying. It's very interesting because I, I can look at it from an individualistic level. Meaning you, you try to you try to be fair and just to the side that you were 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 enemies with and may continue to be enemies with. But you say here, I am working a solution that will directly benefit the both of us and it'll have a massive benefit for you. But you need to abide by the rules. You can't again, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. I'm the one in power, I call the shots. We are giving you the opportunity to have a very different life with us and together, you know, together with us. But if you use that as a tool and as a method to continue to advance your uh, desire for say, taking Israel back and calling it Palestine, we're going to come down with such a heavy hand. I mean, that, that's, and that's at least what I, what I hear you saying. And I happen, I happen to be in support of that idea. Yeah. I don't have a problem with the word Palestine, meaning I've, from my perspective, Palestine is just one of many names for our country. Okay. And, I, and I, I think if somebody wants to call this land Palestine, that's cool. We've called it Palestine. We, you know, even our Torah calls this land Eretz Canaan sometimes, you know, the land of Canaan. So like, I, I'm okay with people calling it Palestine. What I don't like is when they talk about Israel and Palestine, like they're two different places. Mm -hmm. You know, like the West Bank is Palestine and uh, and and west of the green line is israel this is one country you can call it palestine you can call it israel but don't call it don't refer to it as two different locations right um and and i think that you know the the conflict in israeli society the friction has been do we want to have a jewish state or do we want to have a state of all its citizens and i think what we really want to do is have a jewish state of all its citizens to figure out a way to have a state that's like really 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 deeply jewish at least for the people who want that who will, who will see it who will recognize mm -hmm. it um, but a state where, where all human beings are equal, have equal access to the wealth and resources of the country. Uh, and, you know, like water, for example, you know, there's no reason why, uh, why, why uh, somebody in Efrat should have more water than somebody in uh, Bethlehem. You know, like, we, we can be fair, we can be just, or we, we can make sure that every human being is, is able to get what they need in order to live good uh you know productive lives here and 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 i think that's a jewish value you know and i think that makes you know just the fact that we're behaving that way makes the state more jewish i think it's i think it's true i i you articulated it very nicely um what, what do you think this is ever going to happen is is the funny question I, I well that's the thing i think that what we're seeing and even though it looks scary in the beginning that that's what i'm trying to say i'm saying that this shift in our 
in our um, culture, in our identity, the shift that's happening now in Israeli society, where it looks like Israel is kind of becoming this other kind of state, you know, like who are these guys and and uh, they're, they're scary. And again, when we try to apply the Western political um, framings, it's like, oh, they're the far right, they're the, you know, ultra national, whatever words we use, they're people who have a, not a European style nationalism or a Jewish flavor of European style nationalism, they have, I don't know what the word is, I guess we'll say national, they have like a real Jewish nationalism, right? It's something that's like very rooted in our land, very rooted in our history, very connected to our ancestors. Like these are people, you see, if a guy, if a, if a Zionist, if somebody with like a very shallow Jewish flavor of European nationalism engages with the Palestinian story, he often loses his Jewish nationalism. He often just becomes like, oh, the Palestinians are right, we're wrong, what are we doing here, right? That's often what happens in those cases. But if somebody like Itamar Ben-Gvir or Betzalos Motrich or Avi Maoz um, engages with the Palestinian story, which they haven't done, meaning I'm, I'm, obviously they haven't done yet, and, and that's what I'm saying, it's like, we're in like a very like, uh, a new stage and it needs to develop. It hasn't developed yet, but I think the direction is actually a good direction because those people, their voters, maybe not them personally, but their voters, the people who vote for, for politicians like that, when they engage with the Palestinian story because their identity is so strong and so rooted and so real, it's not in danger. They could actually be themselves and still recognize the Palestinians without, and, and recognize what we did wrong to them or, or what the Zionists did wrong to them. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it, I would say that our national development is um, is expressed by our first three kings, you know, Shaul, David, and Shlomo. Shaul is like Zionism. King Saul, he's like Zionism. He's trying to unify the Jewish people. He's focused on our, our security, our economy, um, the things that make us a nation like all the other nations around us. That's his focus. Um, and then David is like the national religious, like the people who vote for Smotrich, right? The guys who, who are like combat officers and they're great fighters and they want to build a temple, but they can't because David can't build a temple, right? Uh, it takes more than, you know, what we can call, you know, religious nationalism to build a temple. And, um, and, and you could see that the Shaul people are very scared of the David people. Right, the Zionists are very scared of the national religious. They're they're afraid that that they're losing the state that they built. They they built the cup, and now somebody's taking away their cup. Somebody wants to fill it with their content, um, and and that's very frightening. But the goal is not to be David. The goal is to be Shlomo. That's Hebrew universalism, where we are our full selves. We might be standing on the shoulders of David. We might share the identity of David but we're facing the rest of the world and really trying to focus on how we can engage with humanity in a healthy way, in a way where we're giving, in a way where we're benefiting um, other humans and uh, including the Palestinians, especially the, the non-Jews who are in our land. Um, and when you look in the Tanakh and you see the last political act of David before transitioning to Shlomo is he recognizes and tries to fix the crimes of Zionism against the Palestinians. He tries to fix the crimes of Shaul against the non-Jews, the Givonim, the Gibeonites living under Shaul, right? And, and I think that's, that's the key. I think when the Jews 
it has to be the Jews who voted for Smotrich and Ben Gvir. It can't be the ones who voted for Yair Lapid. It can't be the ones who voted for Michaeli. It can't be the ones who voted for uh, the Palestinian parties. It has to be the Jews who voted for Smotrich and Ben Gvir when they're able to recognize and try to fix what Zionism did wrong to the Palestinians, then we're going to be able to progress, advance to the stage of Hebrew universalism and actually be a leader on the world stage. I hear you. You know, that, you, that, that makes sense. It's just crazy to me to think of Israel suddenly opening its borders and letting people flood into the country. People are going to be scared shitless of that idea. It's, it's a very scary thought to do that. You have, you know, Arabs from Gaza just, we open the gate. All right, guys, come. And they just start settling. They start God, living. I, I think Gaza, first of all, I don't, I, I think we do have to have a conversation about refugees, but um, the first, the, the first experiment I would want to run would actually be in Gaza because uh, Gaza is a place full of Palestinians from places like Haifa and Beersheba and Akko and Yafo who fled in 1948. Um, and, at least claim that they want to go back to those places. Um, and also we have almost uh, 10,000 Jews who were expelled from Gaza in 2005 who want to go back to Gaza, right? And so I think um, if, if we, a gesture I think Israel could make is we can offer, you know, because obviously Gaza is going to be part of our country. If Gaza is part of our country, then it doesn't matter from a demographic perspective whether Palestinians in Gaza or Yafo or Akko or Haifa, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, he still counted the same. So I think w one thing Israel could do, which I think would be a nice gesture, is we can offer any Palestinian in Gaza who wants. If he wants to go back to Haifa, he wants to go back to Akko, he's not going to go back to the house. Like the house is either gone or somebody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. We can't do that. But what we can do, what the government of Israel can do, is build brand new luxury apartments that we would give to Palestinians who want to go back to Haifa or Yafo or wherever, like for free. They own a brand new luxury apartment proportional to the size of their family. And uh, it's a way not only to experiment with solving the refugee issue, but also a way to redistribute wealth in the country uh, because they'll have home ownership, which is a big deal. And of course, we would also rebuild Gush Katif. We would rebuild the Jewish communities that were destroyed in Gaza so that the Jews who want to live in Gaza can go back and do so. Um, well, here's a quick thing. Do you think Israelis would actually go and live there? And this, this is considering that Hamas is gone, right? Hamas is gone. Israel's already taken over. Is yeah. This, is this scenario? Well, either Hamas is gone or Hamas becomes an ally. I mean, however that plays itself out. But let's say gone. Let's say we've, we've okay. dismantled Hamas. They don't exist anymore. Okay. For the sake of the so say you have 5,000 5, Arabs from Gaza come in and live in wherever, mm -hmm. okay, live in uh, Beersheba, for instance, and then 5,000 Israelis from uh, Efrat or wherever that used to live in Gush Katif, they, they go back there. So you kind of have a trade-off in a sense, even though it's all under, it's all under one umbrella. I get what you mean. Right. And, and, and right now, Gaza has a, a problem with overpopulation. I mean, there is a crisis in, uh, in Gaza. So Aren't I there think parts of Gaza though, that's, that still are highly uninhabited and they just all send, they tend to congregate in one area. Not that I know of, but I haven't been there since 2005. Mm -hmm.
So I, I'm not really uh, in a position to answer that. To the, the, what I understand is there's a humanitarian crisis due to overpopulation. And I think that uh, that's something that can be solved by making that offer to those, those who are from refugee families who say they want to go back to Haifa, we should give them an opportunity to go back to Haifa and we should even give them uh, brand new apartments in Haifa that they can own and pass on to their children. Um, you know, but, uh, but the Jews have to be able to come back to Gaza as well. And Gaza, of course, will be part of the single state that we're talking about. Interesting. Okay. That's funny because on one hand, it, what's so interesting is very right-wing Israelis or even very right-wing Jews, and I consider myself a, a right-wing Jew, although you know you have your labels, is I used to be the kind of person that would say absolutely hell not to this. Mm -hmm. And what I'm coming to realize for people who are listening to this, because if there are Israelis who are listening to this, they're very right-wing and they go, you guys are, you, you and you are a bunch of lefties, you guys are, are naive, it's never going to work the current status quo is not working. You know, people have to right. take it that into account. What we're currently dealing with is not working. And you have, might have some very extremist Israelis that might say, you know what, F them. Let them live in Gaza. Let them suffer. Let's, you know, a few Israelis die. It is what it is. Let's keep suffocating them. Eventually, who knows what, eventually we'll kill them all or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the likelihood is if we don't do something different, we're going to continue with this the issue the way it is forever something's got to give. This is not a way to do it. Have all these checkpoints set up to have soldiers in the West Bank walking around. The current status quo is not working. It's not working. And and to people listening to this that, again, are, are looking at us as naive, it's like, well, only God knows what happens. What I do love that you said, and I'm really enjoying everything you're saying, is we need to recognize that we are the powerful ones. We're the ones in power. It's our military, not their military. It's 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 going to and I I don't want there to be some sort of dual flag. If they want to have their flag, so be it. But I want uh, I want Israel to remain the the nation state to remain the for us to remain the ones in power, and they're going to have to acknowledge that as a condition. Now, that's what I say. I mean, eventually, I think we should be allies, meaning uh, like the relationship we have with the Jerusalem, it's not perfect. Yeah, but, but they it, accept, but the Jews, sorry to interrupt, the Jews uh, happily accept it. Right. We, again, um, the argument I'm making, and it's, it's a big if, I know that I, I'm just like throwing it out there like it's so easy, but the, the claim I'm making is that if we're able to fix the relationship dynamics, if we're able to fix, if we're able to change the roles we play in each other's national stories, if we're able to improve the role that we as Israelis play in the Palestinian story, and we're able to improve the role that Palestinians play in our story, then I think that a lot becomes possible because our relation, again, we're, I, and, and I know we're not there yet. I know we're still living in a reality where we're enemies. Um, we're, right now we are enemies, which is so frustrating because we don't have to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, as long, I mean, it should go without saying, I don't think you need an ideology or, or a political platform to say, if anybody attacks me, I'm going to uh, hurt him and make him sorry he ever attacked me, right? That just, uh, that just should be a normal human thing, right? Mm -hmm. So no, nobody, should, nobody should feel uh, emboldened to attack me. But at the same time, I think it is so unnecessary that we have beef. I think there's, it's such a misunderstanding. Like we really, I maybe, maybe 
the Zionist leaders in the 1930s and 40s knew exactly what they were doing and committed atrocities against Palestinians, or maybe they didn't, but the masses for sure didn't, right? Meaning the masses of Jews who lived in this country, like their experience was, hey, these Arabs want to kill us, like we have to do something, right? And the and the experience, and, and vice versa. So I'm saying that, you know, our, our it would be a great victory, a late victory, but a great victory over the British Empire if we were able to figure out a way to fix um, our relationship with the Palestinians. Because that's like a lasting, I, I, I kind of experience the, the, fa the fact that we even have beef, the fact that we even have conflict, us and the Palestinians, like, like every time I'm reminded of it, and it's quite often because I live here, but every time I'm reminded of it, like it, it almost feels like uh, like it's like a leftover oppression from when the British were here. It's like a mess that they made. We contributed. Don't I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook. There were Zionists and there were Palestinians who contributed, but uh, but it was something that the British did to advance British interests, and we fell into the trap of fighting one another. Sure. I mean, I I think there, I mean there's always going to be fighting. Most likely, there's a, there was always going to be some level of. Uh challenge i don't think if if this whole plan worked out we'd be immune to any attacks or any killings but it, hopefully it would go down tremendously but hey this is why i'm not prime minister because i i'm a tough person but i don't think i would have the mental strength to go and move forward with such a decision because the amount of backlash oh my god i mean there'd be so many people in in uh there were people. There were people that would be supportive, and people that would be enormously anti the idea. Right. The first look. The first step. I'm not prime minister. You're not prime minister. We're not doing any of these big things. The best we can do, and and some of the work I'm involved in. Again, my, my primary work is Jewish education work to train young Jews to become thought leaders in this next chapter of Jewish history to actually be be um, the next Herzl, so to speak. Meaning those who are actually um, creating a post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that can advance our, our story forward. Um, but one of the conclusions I came to is that one of the goals of Jewish history in this chapter is reconciliation with the Palestinians. So the best I can do as somebody committed to reconciliation with Palestinians is not create a solution or implement, certainly not implement a solution because I'm not, I don't have the power to do that personally. The best I can do is create the conditions to change the relationship between individual Jews and Palestinians, to have dialogue sessions like narrative therapy and, and to bring Jews and Palestinians together to understand each other without feeling threatened. And it's a lot of work, like meaning it's, it's like a, it, the words are nice, but like to actually do it is, is real work. Um, but that's the best I can do. And hopefully if that spreads, if we do that enough and other groups, there's like other groups trying to do similar things, uh, you mentioned Habayit before, um, and uh, there's Shorashim, and you know, I, I mean, again, I'm I'm talking about groups that are specifically looking uh, to bring West Bank Jews together with Palestinians. I think that's that's an important part of this because it's the it's the Jews in the West Bank who are actually um, deeply rooted enough in our own story and identity and and um, uh, sense of mission that um, that it's like a safe and be productive for us to 
to uh, engage with Palestinians and start to understand them. So that's the best I can do right now. Like I can bring people together to understand each other's stories better and maybe to work towards some kind of shared struggle where we're co-protagonists in the same story. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that work's going to need to be done. And uh, and uh, the only the only way real political change can happen is if you know, we're not scared of each other. If we don't relate to each other as the enemy trying to kill me or displace me or whatever. Then a lot's possible. A lot becomes possible when the relationships change. But as long as the relationships are what they are right now, there is no solution that's possible, not one. And including the status quo, the status quo is not possible either. Terrible. Do, do you think? Do you think that Palestinians have any groups like this whatsoever? Because I don't. I mean, they well, a lot of them the participate way. in the. You know, a lot of them participate yeah. in these. Things. Yeah. And they very much like the 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 idea that you're proposing. They're for it. Depends Why? who. Look, everybody's different. Not everybody. They're not a monolith. There are Palestinians who really get excited by what I say, and there are Palestinians who have a lot of critiques and uh, you know um, and pushback. Yeah, that's fine. But I think uh, all that should be on the table. Sure. No, the fact that we can have dialogue with them is 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 a step forward. Yeah, I just again, I, I just hope that uh, it's up to God. But I that if something like this ever does happen, I uh, I hope that no one will be able to say I told you so because I am somebody that loves peace. I love the idea of making peace with people. But when I put in an attempt to make peace with somebody, and they now use that as a as a way to step on my head. Yeah, I'm, I'm not suggesting you make your. I'm not suggesting any of us make ourselves vulnerable. I, mean, I think as I think as a result, we are doing that to some degree. Well, that's that's what people hear, All right? I'm right. I'm. I guess maybe I take for granted my own strength. Maybe I take for granted the fact that I'm a wolf. Mm -hmm. And uh, and at no point do I. Fortunately, feel... not all of us. Are, I very much see that I, I see myself as as a wolf as well. Right, so the the so wolves in the front. Meaning it's the wolf again. Who who are the wolves in our political system? Who are the wolves? The wolves are Smotrich. Mm -hmm. The wolves are Ben Gvir. Is uh, is right? Those, those are the wolves. So those are the people, and their voters should be the ones who are really engaging with Palestinians. And uh, because again, it's safe for them. It's safe for them from a physically, but like you know, meaning like they're, you know, I I, I don't know if like. Uh, I, I don't want to make the claim that the Smotrich voter can fight better than the Benny Gantz voter. That might be an unfair claim, but ideologically, it's safer. Meaning, it's safer in terms in terms of their identity, in terms of um, you know how they understand things. And and I think that that's where we need to go. I think that is the way forward. Specifically, the formula is specifically the the voters who voted in the scary national religious uh, members of Knesset. Those are that's the sector of Israeli society that needs to be engaging with Palestinians in order to um, be able to move us forward. That makes a lot of sense in a way, because even if they they think that they're extremists initially, and there definitely are extremists. But then again, extremists are also what push what push change. That's the wild part about extremists like extremists are bad to a large degree. But if the world didn't have if, if different societies didn't have extremists, certain things wouldn't get done that's the crazy part uh at the same time there is a level of respect even if somebody doesn't like someone there is a level of respect you can have for that person so even if in an ideal world the palestinians wish that we all packed our bags and left but if they know we're not doing that at any time 
and they know that even though they might not like us or love us, they have to respect us, at least live, leading with respect may get us to where we need to be. You, you don't have to love us, but respect us. Understand that we are, we're going to stand our ground. We have a knowledge in what, we're, in what we believe in, like you mentioned. And in doing so, hopefully the respect can maybe at some point lead to a love for each other, if that makes any sense. Right. And again, it's a, it, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I think we need to at least be conscious of the direction. We need to, we need to choose a direction and move in that direction. Okay. The direction is not a two-state solution. The direction is not retreating from our land. It's not retreating from our identity. The direction is a deeper embrace, a deeper, uh, a deeper uh, reconnection to our land and to our identity. Um, and those of us who have been in the front of that, those of us who are most advanced in terms of returning to ourselves, our land, our identity, our culture, those are the Jews who should be at the front of relations with Palestinians uh, and others in order to in order to uh, make the relationship dynamic such that we could put a good solution on it. Okay. Well, and I I hear you. I hear you, and I and I very much agree. Then is there anything else you wanted to touch up on? No, I mean, there's, it's endless. These conversations are endless. Oh, I know, I know. We can have it. We can talk about this. I know we, we, we kind of focused on Palestinian issues, but it's really, for me, what I would really want to encourage all of your, at least all of your Jewish uh, viewers to do is try to think about what are the goals of Jewish history, uh, what's already been achieved, what's left to accomplish, and what you can do to be a character in that story. How can you be an active participant in the story of your people coming back to life after 2000 years with all of the challenges, all the, you know, all of the flaws, um, not to not to run away, but to actually see yourself as responsible for fixing those flaws. Sounds sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Okay. Again, you can find me at visionmag.org or visionmovement.org. Sure, I will again post the link. So Yehuda, thank you for joining me. It really was an enlightening discussion. I look forward on uh, forward to having you on again. You and I did discuss talking to a Palestinian that I was talking to from New York. We'll see what happens. We can. I mean, you you're already to talk. You're excuse yeah. me. You're already talking to many of them inside of Israel. So we can hopefully hop on and do another episode getting his perspective our perspective and seeing if uh, you know seeing what he thinks about it. sure all right well guys make sure to subscribe like and share leave your comments good or bad we welcome them all and i will see you in the next episode okay so hold on i'm just going to turn off the recording